Welcome to the Declaration Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor John Cheryl. For more information about Declaration Church and other resources, visit declaration.org. I love it. I love, I love that. You know, when we, when we started talking about church planting, other than those things that we knew we'd be passionate about, you know, community and discipleship and worship and evangelism and all these things, mission, one of the things that we really prayed about and talked about was just seeing a church that was fully alive and engaged in the arts. That, that we wouldn't find ourselves like so many of the other, um, just my life, my upbringing in church, that worship was just kind of very linear with, with singing and talking. You know what I'm saying? I mean, before Enlightenment or, or whatever that was, uh, Reformation, I don't know what, exactly what period it was, Worship was really a holistic thing, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But, but man, I love what Brent is doing. And for, for some of you, you're probably wondering, what's going on over here? It's like he's the Channel 8 guy. There's a tree, and there, well, you're a good little tree. It's not that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry, Brent. But, but you're invited to participate, you know? I mean, that, that we would bring not just our songs and not just our studies, but we would bring our talent and our creativity. And I mean, God's a creative God. We bring our movement. We're going to talk all about these things for the next few weeks. But, but anything and everything that can be ascribed to him in worship um, is completely okay. It's right, in fact. And so, um, man, that is there. I would invite you. You never know how God might just open up a whole new area of intimacy with him. When you step outside of the norm and step into something that just says, man, I, God, I just wanna, I wanna express this unto you, right? So I love that Brent is here and JD and those that are creative, they're doing these things. Man, can we just thank the Lord for that? Because that's, you know, some people, um, I know that some people might, might come in the room and go, oh, it's one of those churches, you know? You're right. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, there's never, there's never a shortage of opinion on this subject matter, right, when it comes to worship. There's never a shortage of opinion. And uh, so my whole uh, ministry life, at least the majority of it, was in leading worship. And uh, I was um, both a product and I think a survivor of the worship wars. Does anybody remember the worship wars? Or is that just us? that get the emails every week because we do them. I mean, but yeah, worship, it's like, let me, let me show you how it played out. Hymns versus choruses. Now do you understand what I'm talking about? Or whether it was uh, choirs or no choir or robes or matching outfits with coordinated movements. <laughs> it's like Christian yoga on stage as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, you know, it's like, I don't know. I've seen it. I've been there. I've not done it because that would not be a pretty thing. Um, lights and haze, which is super fun and cool. But if we do it here, like all of a sudden cops would show up because they'd be thinking that it was on fire and that's never good. Lights and haze versus bells and smells. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody grow up with bells and smells? All right. I kind of dig that too. It's kind of cool. Um, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. But if you do that, I'm out. You know, I mean. It's actually really cool. I mean, you name it. I've heard it. I've got the T-shirt. I've got a few scars from it. I mean, you know, I, I, I survived it. I do have some battle wounds along the way from it. But there's never a shortage of opinion when it comes to worship. But what is worship really? And who is it for? Who is it for? I mean, is it about us? Um, I, I had a, about a, a six-month um, time where I was privileged to work with the Anglican church. 
And I really loved so much of the beauty and the mystery found in the ancient, because they're not afraid of mystery and emotion. They're not afraid of, of, you know, taking something ancient and liturgical and mixing it with modern. And, and, and I loved it. It was so refreshing in so many ways. The one thing that I really loved about it, though, is that you never heard anybody leave going, well, what did you think about that? <laughs> You know, because if you ask somebody, like, how would you feel worship went today? They go, I don't know. Ask God, you know. What about me? I mean, it's not about us. Many people have the wrong idea of what worship really is. There was this little boy once who was listening to his parents discuss the church service. Mom said, well, I just didn't like the songs. Didn't like them today. Dad said, man, that preacher, it was just entirely way too long. I'm sure no one has ever said that here. And the little boy just said, well, man, I thought it was a pretty good show for the dollar that it cost me. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, one of, one of the most prominent voices in the uh, church today, in the American church, is a guy named Louis Giglio. Has anyone ever heard of him? Or maybe you're a product of, of a lot of his ministry, whether you went to Baylor. Any Baylor here? No, I didn't think so. Okay. Um, I'm just playing. I knew there's always a few. I'm just messing with you. Um, yeah, or maybe you were, did you go to Choice when he was there? With no? Okay. Anybody go to the Passion Conferences at all? Did you grow up doing that? A few of you? Okay. Yeah, me too. Um, but he has this great definition of worship. He said, worship is our response, both personal and corporate to God, for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. And I remember when he came out with that definition, I was like, man, that is a really great definition. Let me read it again. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. And what I really like about is, is the very first sentence, the very first few words, because it says, our what? Response. It's our response. Worship has to come from something. It has to be evoked from something. Out of a deep gratitude, out of deep affection, we are responding to the greatness and the rightness and the goodness of God, both personally and corporately. We are responding to God for who he is, what he is doing, and what he has done. And this plays out in how we live our life. It plays out day by day and moment by moment. It's not just a Sunday thing between breakfast and football. It's an all-the-time thing. It's a very spiritual activity that never ceases. Did you know that you were created by design from our creator for worship? There is not one piece of creation in all of it that is not created to point to and exalt God. You are hardwired for it. And it plays out in many different ways. Because, see, here's the truth of the matter. Everybody worships something. Everyone is bowing at some sort of altar in worship. Everyone's life is yielded to something, giving their attention and their affection to it. Everyone. There was a British preacher named Dr. W.M. Temple. And he defined worship like this, and I really like it. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. Number one. To worship, number two, is to feed the mind the truth of God. And see, this is so important. This is why we often say at church, hey, listen, if you don't have a physical Bible, please grab one. We have some free available to you either on that table or at the hub, and the, the table in the back or at the hub. Because we understand that if you're not feeding your mind the truth of the word of God, then you're living by feeling and emotion. 
And feeling an emotion is not necessarily a bad thing. There is a big movement that's been going on for quite some time since the Reformation that basically divorces every aspect out of worship, whether it be your, your emotion or your movement, your body, your hands. I mean, it's divorced all of that in the name of intellectualism. It's a new Gnosticism, if you will. We'll talk about that later. But I love this definition from Dr. Temple. To quicken the conscience of, by the holiness of God, to feed the mind the truth of God. Number three, to purge, I love this, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God. In 2004, we were singing this song called Beautiful Jesus. And I remember reading an article by a well-known theologian that was basically um, disciplining the church, if you will, for using the word beauty in reference to God. He said it wasn't masculine and it's weird and no one wants to sing it or say it because it's awkward. And I'm like, when you think of the wonder and the majestic nature of who God is, how can you not be enamored by the beauty in that? To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. And to devote the will to the purposes of God. This is his definition of worship. I love it. It's very thorough and good. Worship is where you give the truest and greatest affections of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength to the one who created you. Webster even defines worship very well. Webster says worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Man, that's good. Extravagant love and extreme submission. So let me guess, what is the object of our worship? I mean, who is it that we are worshiping? What is it that we worship? Obviously, we know that there are very proper churchy Sunday school answers for these questions right now, right? I mean, all things and should begin and end with the God of creation, God and God alone. I mean, he should be the object of our extravagant love and our extreme submission, but is he? I mean, do we really think worship truly is about him or do we function as if it's really about us? Tozier is one of my favorite theologians. He's one of my favorite thinkers, writers, authors, preachers, you name it. I love the stuff that he says. When he was alive, no one liked him. He was not a popular guy. In fact, people did not like him at all because he said hard things that everyone knew was true and right, but they just didn't want to take that medicine. And it wasn't until after he was gone for a while that people started reading it and going, man, this guy was on to it. We've quoted this before and we'll probably quote it again. I'll probably be saying a lot of Tozer quotes all throughout this series because I love reading him, especially when it comes to worship, but... Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The mind is a very important aspect when it comes to worship. You'll see it in Romans 12 too. You saw it in, in Dr. Temple's definition. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Also on that subject, I love what Tozer says about self-discovery. If you want to know what it is, is the, that is the object of your affection or worship, just look at these seven things, these seven questions. Number one, what do we want the most? What do we want the most? Number two, what do we think about the most? There's that mind piece again. What is it that is occupying the real estate of our attention span the most? How are we, oh, this one hurts. How do we use our money? Number four, what are we doing with our time? How do we use our time? 
This is telling us what we worship. Number five, what is the company like that we keep? The people that we enjoy. Number six, who and what is it that we admire? And lastly, self-discovery. What is it that you're worshiping? What, is there, what are the things that we laugh at? I mean, these are hard questions to ask because they kind of make you look at yourself in a spiritual mirror and, and realize some things. See, Tozier had this incredible high view of God. He had such a great passion for God. He was a true and deep worshiper of God. This morning, as we step into this series called Made for This, let me ask you, what is it that we think about God? What do you think about him? I mean, do you have a high view of God? Do you, do you worship God passionately and fervently? Is he the object of your affection and your attention? Is your allegiance surely placed before him? Or are you missing the miracle of the supernatural relationship because you're clinging to the mediocrity of self or even religion? The writings of Paul are very powerful. I love this doxology passage at the end of Romans 11. Let me read it for you. It says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? I mean, this God is too great. He's far too superior. He is the God who was, who is, and who will be forever. He was the God before beginning. He's the transcendent one, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, the God who rides the ancient skies, the God who literally speaks and worlds are created. I mean, who would know this God? He's above human comprehension. He's above imagination even. In verse 35, and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? I mean, God owes us absolutely nothing. Who are we in comparison to this holy God who deserves so fully and faithfully the totality of our worship? He deserves the sum total of all the praise of the entire earth and the heaven combined. I mean, this God is so worthy to be revered and honored and and in humility, we, we, we have the privilege to exalt him because, because he wants us. And it says, who's ever given to God that he should be repaid? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's what I want you to hear. Only creator God, the God of this scripture, the Holy Bible, is the only one truly worthy of all attention, affection, and allegiance. He is the only one worthy of our worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true worship. And verse 2 says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, or in my translation, to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, there it is again, that you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. If you want to know the will of God, man, as a student pastor, which I was never really like a full-time student pastor, but I worked with students forever, I cannot tell you between high school and college how many people, students that I would have come to me and say, I just want to know the will of God for my life. I want to know the will of God. I know I've said this before. Greg Mott said it so eloquently and simply, to know God and make him known. That's the will. But if you really want to get detailed, based upon the greatness and goodness and majestic nature of this supernatural, transcendent, preeminent God, 
and the mercy that he lavishly gives you undeservedly, that you would present your body to him, your whole self as a living sacrifice. So it, it starts and he says, therefore, and he's saying this, Paul is saying, therefore, based upon everything that I've just said through these first 11 chapters, especially wrapping it up in that last section that I read to you, based upon that, based upon the greatness and worthiness of God. Brothers and sisters, so you know he's speaking to me and you, those of us who claim Jesus, who have surrendered our life to his lordship and we follow him in view of the mercies of God, in response to, because of the beautiful, undeserved mercy of God, Paul says, I beg you, I urge you, I plead with you. With great passion, he's saying, present your bodies to him. Present your whole self. It's all inclusive, not just your words, not just your time on Sunday, not just your money here and there to support these things, not just to serve in these or what. No, no, present every aspect of who you are all the time. All the time. It's all inclusive. And he says, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Why? Jesus was the last dead sacrifice so that in turn, we could be the living sacrifice. The book of Romans says that the very same power, the very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides within us. Man, come on, somebody. And he's saying, man, present your life, everything about who you are. Worship is life, more than even lifestyle. It's life. It's the very air that you breathe. That breath is destined by God to exalt him. Man, I just got goosebumps. Come on. It's hot up here. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, holy in Minnesota once, I was doing this junior high conference, and I said, hey, what does the word holy mean? And I heard this little voice go, and I was like, someone translate those tongues. I don't get that. It's a little dude, you know? And I'm like, stand up. He goes, I am standing up. <laughs> he was small. He's <laughs> like, get on a chair, dude. <laughs> and this is what he said. They finally passed up what he said to me, you know, up off of the ground. He said, holy means to be joyfully set apart. And I love that. You know why? Because there was a conscience a conscious decision, how do you say that word? Conscious decision to say, no matter what, I'm so thankful. And there's joy in the fact that I know I'm set apart from him, by him. I'm set apart by him and for him. So present your whole self to God, joyfully set apart and pleasing. And let me tell you this. Listen, this is not about your activity for God. This is about your identity in God. Because of Jesus and the blood that covers you, God is so pleased already. I want you to hear that. But you know what? When you love something, you live in a way that you love it. When you love something and value something, you live in a manner that shows that love and that value and that respect. And so this is what he's saying. Man, live your, every aspect of your life is this living sacrifice, joy, joyfully set apart, pleasing to God because of Jesus. Have this extravagant love, this humble gratitude and this extreme submission. He says, this is your true, this is authentic worship. It has nothing to do with what's going on in a building when you sing songs. That's just one piece of you expressing your joy and your affection and your appreciation and your need to him. But this is your true worship, your life. 
Every aspect of you. He says, don't be conformed to this age. Do not conform to culture. Do not claim humble citizenship in heaven, but cling to the humanistic consumerism of culture. Don't do that. Be transformed, made new. Be reborn by the renewing of your mind, changing the way that you think. You've already been hardwired to worship. And when you're born into brokenness, you need to be rewired to see him for who he is. And when you encounter him and you submit to him, he begins to change everything. And he begins with your mind, changing the way that you think. This is how you're going to understand how to live in this extreme submission with joy. See, our God is worthy of all worship. Our God is worthy of all affection. Our God is worthy of all attention and allegiance. So how is it that we define worship today? I mean, we have truly began to reflect our culture more than we reflect Christ, honestly. And if you want to see evidence of it, just begin to look at worship. I mean, I see more worship happening last night at Minute Maid Park than I see in the churches today. And I'm not trying to be hardcore because I was, dude, you would have thought that I, that, that I was a soccer fan. You've seen what those guys do when they score that one goal. Uh, they're running, man. Shirts off. They're going crazy. You know, I was losing it last night. Some of you saw my Facebook post. It was like, there was was nothing in it. Just, ah, you know. I was so jazzed up. But that's the truth of the matter. Listen, man, we, we are so easy to give our affection to something that's not worth it. And we have access to the creator God. And he is. You know, Matthew 26, you want to see a... You want to see an example of extravagant love and extreme submission, Jesus in the garden. If there's any way that this cup, this cup, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is a beautiful example of extravagant love and extreme submission in worship. I mean, how many of us have ever found ourselves praying that, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from my hands, but nevertheless, not my will be done but yours. Listen, here's what I know, and it's only out of personal experience. I really believe that, that, that the true worship begins when, when my agenda ends. When it's not about me. When it's not about me. Let me illustrate. We're crucified with Christ, no longer to live for ourselves, but... Uh, inviting Christ to live inside of us. This is us saying, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. This is us out of an extravagant love, a deep gratitude, living in extreme submission. This is where we bow our heart's affections to God. This is where our mind's attention is, is rewired and placed upon God. We can't, get, we can't get to anything else but through him. This is where our ultimate allegiance is found at the foot, at the, at the, at the foot of the cross. It's denying self and taking that cross. I mean, here's the Americanized church dilemma today. I heard a guy say this and it stuck with me. I wish I knew. I remembered who it was. So let's just say it was me. I'm just playing. It wasn't me. All right. But here's, here's the challenge. We worship. Listen now. We worship our work. We work at our play. And we play at our worship. John 4, Jesus is traveling through Samaria, Samaria and he comes to this town. It's, it's near the property um, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And there's a well that's there. You've heard the story. Um, you know, Jesus is pretty tired. He's been on this journey. And it's about noon. It's 
about noontime, and I'm sure they were probably looking for a water burger somewhere because I would have been. But um, they're there, and this woman comes to draw water, and she says, you know, she's a Samaritan woman. We'll get into that. But Jesus looks at her and he says, give me a drink. The disciples are not with them. They've gone in to look for Whataburger. Like I said, they're buying food. Somebody better laugh. That's good stuff. And this lady says, how is it that you, being a Jew, you're asking me for a drink? I'm Samaritan. I'm a woman. I mean, she's like, do you not understand what's happening here, dude? You know, that's basically what she's saying. And Jesus answers right back and he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink. He says, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, says the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is really, really deep. So where are you going to get this living water? I mean, you're not greater than Jacob, are you? You're not greater than his sons. I mean, Jacob gave us this well in the first place. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks from this water is gonna get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I give will become a well of water springing up for eternal life. And the woman says, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. And Jesus looks at her in 16 and says, go ahead and call your husband. And, and, and he says, and y'all come back. And she goes, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you've correctly said this. You don't. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. It's not your man. And the woman says, well, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on the mountain, and you Jews say that the place of worship's in Jerusalem. And Jesus says something very profound. We'll get into it in a second. But he says, believe me, woman, an hour. Believe me, woman. It's not what it's not. It's not, it's not, it's not right. <laughs> I'm sure he says, I'm like, believe me, nice, gentle, feminine person. (laughs) No, but he said, he said this, believe me, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And Jesus looks at her and says, that's me. I'm that guy. So right about the time, disciples come up, right? And they're amazed because, first of all, Jesus is in Samaria, and he's talking to a woman who is a Samaritan. And they're like, uh, yo, what's up? Didn't you see the memo? <laughs> These people, uh-uh. It's a cultural no-no. They're less than. They're half-breed. They're not even worthy of our attention. Why are you talking with her, Jesus? Right then, the woman leaves her water jar. She runs into town. She begins to tell people, come see this man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And as she's doing that, these people are gathering up. They're going to go back. They're going to go see this Jesus guy. So I want to do this. I know we have just a few minutes left, but I want to pray with you because I hope that you can see just a few things that I saw in this passage, okay? Let's pray really fast. Jesus, would you speak to us in a very intentional and intimate, powerful way this morning? We pray this in your name and all God's people said loudly. There you are. All right. So obviously, you know, he's in Samaria. Um, You know, he's talking to this lady. 
You know that there's a well there, there's water. You've seen the whole story kind of play out just as we read. You need to understand just how much of a cultural no-no this was that Jesus was talking to this Samaritan woman. I mean, you did not do this, especially at this hour. Like, why is she there at noon? Why is Jesus addressing her? Why is he saying, give me a drink? You've got to also understand, I wonder how long it's been since this woman has even felt dignity at all. She is not what you would call a a woman of good reputation. First of all, she's at the well at noontime. This is not the proper time to be at the well. She is there at that time on purpose to avoid people because she does not have a good reputation. And culturally speaking too, there are still places in the Middle East, if you go there, if you've ever been there, you might've heard some of the cultural no-nos. One of those is making eye contact with the woman. And so I can only imagine when it's just Jesus and her, There they are, and he looks at her and says, would you give me some water? How profound must have this moment been in this lady's life? And obviously she's like, time out, bro. What's going on here? What are we doing? I mean, she's she's taken back. I mean, how is it that you, a Jew, you're going to ask a drink from me? I'm a Samaritan woman. Whoa, man. You people are a hard crowd today, man. It's like y'all stayed up too late celebrating or something. Nobody was up later than me and Bruce. Where are you at, Bruce? He Facebooked me. (laughs) There you are. I mean, this is not a normal situation. And I love it because no matter the story, no matter the situation that, that that, that culture might view in this moment, what it looks like, Jesus is speaking with such dignity and compassion, offering her a gift He says, if you knew the gift of God and who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would be asking me to give you living water. And she's like, well, you don't even have a a bucket. Do you see see how perspective plays out? We're so quick to look in the natural and miss the supernatural. We're so quick to hold on to the mediocre and just forget about the miracle that might be right in front of us. Well, I mean, you don't even have a bucket. I mean, when's the last time God ever needed of anything? Where are you going to get this living water? I mean, you're not greater than Jacob and his sons. I mean, they gave this to us and livestock too. And Jesus, I'm, I'm just imagining he's looking down at this well. And he says, um, so everyone who drinks from this, I mean, they're going to get thirsty again quickly. He says, but everyone who drinks from the water that I will give, they will never thirst again. They'll never thirst again. And what I give becomes a well of water springing up inside for eternal life. So what he's saying is this, when you come to me, you will be satisfied. Your soul will not only be nourished, but it will be satisfied. You will be fulfilled when you come to me. When you really and truly come to me with the entirety of your whole heart and mind and soul and strength, you will be eternally filled. This woman, I want you to know, she's in the presence of God in flesh. And can I tell you this? When we get into the presence of Jesus... Nothing else. There is no other well that will do. There is no other water that will satisfy us. And look at her response. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw again. Now, I want you to see it. See, when people encounter Jesus and understand how he can satisfy the longing of their souls, they want what he can give. They want what he can give. And, and maybe her, her question, I mean, maybe she didn't still quite understand just the nature of hope, how profound it was. Maybe she was still looking to the practical. Give me the water so that I won't get thirsty. And by the way, I won't have to journey here again. 
right? But I don't find it accidental because, see, oftentimes in Scripture, we see that Jesus meets physical needs prior to absolutely rocking someone's spiritual world. Sir, the woman says, give me this water. And Jesus says, go call your husband. And I love this 15, 16, 17, 18, because he begins to speak right into the heart of her identity. He just goes right. It's like he reads her spiritual mail right there. And, and, and go get your husband. Uh, yeah, he's not. Okay, yeah, well, yeah, you're right. He's not. And the other five weren't either. He's not wasting any time. I mean, why do you think he does this? He wants to speak to the heart of identity with her. I mean, he knew about her past. He knew about her hurt, her insecurity, her fear. Come on, somebody, if this is you. He knew about her longing, her habits, her addictions, her reputation, her issues. And in spite of all cultural taboo, he still looks at her dead in the eye with dignity while gently offering compassion in life. And sir, the woman replies, I see you're a prophet. I love it because... What is our nature? Our nature is to always, if we have any concept at all, we pivot to religion. And that's exactly what she does. She pivots right to religion. Look what she says. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. (laughs) But you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus just says, believe me, the hour is coming. And it's now, basically. When you are going to worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He's basically saying it has nothing to do with the mountain or Jerusalem. It's not the where, it's the what. And see, worship is not about a place or a preference, it's about his presence. It's not about a location, it's about your love. And Jesus tells her, you can believe me, take it to the bank. An hour is coming where you're going to worship the Father, not on this mountain and not in Jerusalem. But one thing he says for sure is this, you will worship because you are created for it. You're hardwired to do it. You're going to do it. You Samaritans worship where you don't know. We worship what we do because salvation's from the Jews. The hour is coming and it, now it's here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And he says, yes. The Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Listen, here's what I learned. Worship is absolutely spiritual. It's absolutely of the spirit. If we, den- if we deny Holy Spirit of his place in the triune Godhead, we are not worshipers of Jesus. We are not worshipers of the Father. I grew up in a system that claimed it, but didn't confess it with their lives. It's scary and heartbreaking. It's spiritual. See, we often, we often fixate on our preference or style. We have become all about style and very little substance when it comes to our worship. We are to worship in spirit, not just songs. We're to worship in truth, not just talks. It's not about our performance. It's really just about his presence. It's about his presence. And can I also say this? I've heard this said before, that worship is just practice for heaven. Has anybody ever heard that? Well, we're just going to practice for heaven up in here this morning. No, no, it's not. Worship is participating with heaven. It's joining in with all of creation and the angels and just declaring your love and affection and gratitude to God on high. That's worship. So the woman goes on. I know the Messiah is coming. 
When he comes, he's going to tell us everything. He's going to explain it. Jesus says, I am the one speaking to you. I'm, I'm him. Disciples show up. You know the rest of the story. The woman leaves her jar, runs to town, starts telling people. I mean, look at this. Remember Giglio's first few words? Worship is our what? Response. Look at her response after meeting with Jesus. She's got to run and tell somebody. You run and tell that. Yeah, some of you will get that later. She's going to run and tell some people. I mean, she knew the Messiah was coming, but she didn't recognize him. How many of us know about Jesus, but we wouldn't recognize him if he walked into the room? I love it because in spite of her situation, Jesus was still offering her salvation and life and love. And you know what else is really cool? Profound even. I mean, this dude just drops a theology bomb at the foot of a Samaritan woman of ill repute. That blows my mind. Because we all like to sit around and argue and discuss, well, I mean, you know, this and that, theological. Yeah, but you know what? Jesus just, he just like literally told this woman, nobody else yet, but he tells her, here's how it's about to go down. That's powerful to me. He didn't go to the religious select. He didn't go to the, the theological elite and say, I'm here to tell you something. He went to a Samaritan woman. That should be really good news for anyone who feels less than or left behind or looked over. Let's wrap it up. It's time to go. Is football coming on? Yeah, okay, good. That's, the, that's, that's a good answer. <laughs> We know baseball ain't until Tuesday, so we got all, we got a lot of time. Um, <laughs> come see a man who told me everything I ever did. This is her response. Could this be him? Could this be the Messiah? I mean, she wasn't talking about herself anymore. It wasn't about her. It wasn't about, it wasn't about her anymore. It wasn't about her life, her issues, her not feeling it. Her pain. It wasn't about the fact that she was a victim of just cruel, cruel things. It's hard. Could that be him? Y'all got to come see this. What would happen if we got beyond ourselves and we just started responding to God in a way that we were telling everybody we could find, you got to come see this. I want you to know what I know This is who I've met. It's changed everything. But instead, honestly, what the world sees is a a people who have been created to and called to, invited to this beautiful relationship of worshiping him. They see people who claim that with their lips, but their lives say, no, I don't live in victory. I'm a victim. And this is hard and cruel. And this is terrible. This is terrible. And you know what? No, I'm not called to do anything about redeeming this thing. I'm called to sit and live in my stuff. That's not it. Come see this guy. It wasn't about her anymore. It was all about him. She wasn't talking about herself anymore. She was talking about him. And look what ended up happening because of this testimony. All those people she told, they left town and they came looking for who? Him. That was her response. Immediately, the duty that she had of of coming to get water was left behind for desire that she just found. 
I mean, I say it a lot. Her regularly scheduled program was interrupted. (laughs) And all of a sudden, the water in that well just wasn't what she was going for anymore. Why? Because she met Jesus. And listen, watch it. Her conscience was quickened by him. Her mind was fed by the truth of who he was. Her imagination was caught up in the possibility of this beautiful Messiah that she might even be looking at eye to eye. Her heart was open to a true love that she had never experienced, a dignity that she had never even encountered ever before. And guess what? Her will became devoted to the will and the purpose of God. She went out and told everybody that she could find, anyone who would listen. When is the last time we remember that we were so thankful to God that out of this extravagant love and this extreme submission that we responded to God in such a way that we couldn't even help ourselves? Romans 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of this magnificent, majestic, mighty, holy, transcendent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God who loves you, in view of the mercy that he gives us undeservingly, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything about your life, holy and pleasing, this is true worship. Let's pray together. Father, would you quicken the conscience of our hearts by the holiness of who you are? Father, would you feed our minds right now with the truth of who you are. Would you purge our imagination by your beauty, God? Would you open our hearts even in this very second to receive an unconditional, relentless love that is like nothing we have ever imagined or experienced before? And God, would you devote our will to the purpose of yours? God, may we be worshipers. We were made for this very thing. We were created for you and you alone. And so we say yes and amen. We say yes and amen. We say yes and amen, God. We say yes and amen. Thanks for listening to the Declaration Church podcast. We pray many blessings over you and your journey as you declare him to the nations. For more podcasts and teachings, visit declaration.org slash podcast.